let's begin with prayer. Let's pray as we start this last session. Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for your word. Thank that you've given us a light to lighten our path. You've given us the lamp of your word to show us the way. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the one who opens our eyes to see new things and behold wondrous things in your teaching. Lord, we just pray that you'll give us your Holy Spirit, humble us and help us to forget all our natural ideas and just open ourselves to to your word and to what you say and correct us and shape us and mould us. Help us to deal with our prejudices, prejudices that we inherit by, by our countries or our culture, prejudices that come to us because of the sort of people we are. Help us to just be under your word and grow and be shaped and moulded by your infallible scriptures. Come and teach us now. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. I'm conscious that I've preached on Romans 5, 12 to 21 before in in, uh, Forest Town. I'm not quite sure how many years ago it was when I preached on Romans 5, but I know I have preached on this before. But uh, I don't think any of you will remember it, unless, unless you have marvellous memories. I don't think it will make much difference. I'm probably the only person that remembers it. But, um, but uh, if, you, if you say to me, you preached on that before, I shall answer, yes, I know. <laughs> Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. I think we ought to, to focus a little bit in this last session upon the teaching about the fall. You know, on Sunday morning, if you are a member of Forest Town Church and you're there on Sunday, I shall preach on man redeemed. I shall preach on salvation tomorrow. So, most of the doctrine of man is a bit depressing. I mean, man falls, he falls into sin, it's mainly about sin and judgment and so on. But, but you mustn't end there, you mustn't end with uh, the fall of man, you must go on to man redeemed, man saved, man given the spirit, man in the kingdom of God, humankind in its final glory. You shouldn't just end with things that are depressing. So if I end with something depressing at the moment, just remember to come back Sunday morning and, uh, <laughs> and we'll look at uh, man rescued and saved. But uh, the most important passage in Scripture in connection with the fall is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. In Romans 5, 1, up to Romans chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, Paul is dealing with the consequences of our being saved. He says, being justified by faith... We have, and he starts telling us what we have. We have peace with God. We have an access into grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And he goes on and on and on, all the way to the end of chapter 8, telling us of the things that we have, because we're justified by faith. But in the second half of Romans 5, he says something about our position. He says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, and that, that, that word therefore, it means now, what, where are we now? What position have we got in? Well, the result of all of this, therefore, and he tells us that we're not, the big thing is that we're not in Adam anymore, we're in Christ. And so the most important part of Romans, in many ways, the most important part of Romans is Romans 5, 12 to 21, where he tells us we're in a new position, we're in a new kingdom. We're not a member of the old human race anymore. We're not in Adam anymore. Amazing thing, isn't it? Did you ever? I don't know how many science fiction books you read. I was telling you yesterday that I like books about invisible people. 
I also like, like books about changing, changing the past. Do you ever, do you ever see these films like Deja Vu with uh, Denzel Washington? Do you ever see those, those films or Back to the Future? Do you see those films? Is it possible? I mean, do you ever fantasize about what, what, what would happen if you go back into the past and you get your dad to marry somebody else instead of your, your mum so that you're not quite the same person as you were when you were born? Yeah, maybe, maybe you don't think about things like that. As I say all that to say, the Bible actually says that we can change our ancestor. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Imagine going back into the past and changing who your mum was. Going back into the past and changing who your dad was. Well, you can't do that, but you can go back and change who, who your ultimate ancestor was. Your ultimate, ultimate ancestor was Adam. He is your great, 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 great granddaddy for a few thousand generations. He is your ultimate ancestor. But actually the gospel says that we can actually disengage ourselves from our ultimate ancestor. Instead of being in Adam, we're in Christ. We can actually get rid of our ultimate ancestor and all that he gave us, imparted to us. We can be in a different, a different human race, a different humanity. And Jesus started a new humanity. That's one reason why there was a virgin birth. One reason why Jesus didn't have a human father is Jesus was not born in our human race. He was born of a mother, he was genuinely human, but he wasn't, he wasn't a descendant of Adam. He wasn't, Jesus was not in Adam. He started a new humanity. And the Bible actually talks about God's making one new man, Ephesians chapter 2. He makes a new humanity. He makes a new race. The Bible actually says things like that. And so Romans chapter 5 is, is making this point. There are certain blessings we get immediately. Peace with God and an access into grace and hope of the glory of God and the gift of the Spirit. Those things we can have straight away. But what that means, looking at, at it in a wider way, is that not only do we get these immediate blessings, but our entire position is changed. And we're not in Adam anymore, we are in Christ. And where, where sin once abounded because of Adam and the law and sin and judgment, now grace abounds all the more. The kingdom of grace is vastly bigger than the kingdom of sin that we were born into. So that's the theme of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. But let's look at this in a bit more detail. It's, it starts with an unfinished comparison. If you look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul, it's quite complicated, I, I hope I can uh, steer you through it and, and you won't get lost with, with it, because it's quite complicated. But he begins with an unfinished comparison. It goes like this. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. And he was about to say, so, just as this happened, so that happened. He was about to make a comparison, just as this, so that. But actually he didn't finish his comparison. In your translation, whichever translation you're, you're using, it's quite likely that you have a dash after verse 12. Look at your translation. It probably has a line, a dash. And that's a sign the translator has given you that that sentence is not finished. He just, he, just, he just doesn't have an end to it. He doesn't finish what he was about to say. We know what he was about to say because he does finish it in verse 18. In verse 18 he says, as one sin led to condemnation, so one act of righteousness leads to justification. In verse 18 he does finish the, the, the comparison. 
So we know what he was going to say in verse 12. He was going to say in verse 12 what he says in verse 18. But he gets digressed along the way. There's a reason for it. I'll tell you about it in a moment. He gets, as it were, pushed aside along the way and does not finish his comparison. And there's a reason for that. And so he digresses, he digresses twice. He, he turns aside in verses 13 and 14 to say something different. He turns aside again in verses 15 to 17 to say something else. And in verse 18, he comes back to his comparison and he finishes it. So you need to follow, if you can, you need to follow the, the structure. Let me read it again and try and bring it out for you. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned, and he was going to say so, but he didn't say it. He stops. Now, why, why does he stop? Why, why does Paul start a comparison and not end it? Well, because in the comparison, there were one or two things that needed explanation. The reason why he didn't finish it is because there are certain things that need explanation before he goes any further. So he doesn't finish his sentence. He says, ah, before I go on, let me tell you about a few things. He, ha he has to explain certain things before he can finish his comparison. What is it that he needs to explain? Well, first of all, he needs to explain the phrase all sins, because all men sinned. He needs to explain what he means by that. Let me read it again. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came into the world through sin, and so death spread to all people, because all sinned. He needs to explain that, those last three words, last three words in English. He needs to explain those three words, because all men didn't sin in the way that Adam sinned, it needs explaining. So Paul explains it. He says, verse 13, he says, because sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even, those who, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, let me try and put that to you very simply. It's complicated and I've got only a limited amount of time. So let me try to put it to you very simply. Here, here's the argument, if I can put it, if I can, uh, with apologies to Paul, I'll make his language more simple for you. If, here's the argument. Sin gets punished when God says, if you do this, I'll punish you. God issues a law and says, if you do that, I'll punish you for breaking my law. He did it to Adam. He said to Adam, Adam, don't eat of that tree in the midst of the Garden of Eden. If you do, you'll die. And that's what happened. Adam sinned. God pushed him out of the garden. He, he, he died spiritually. And finally, he died physically. So Adam died because he broke God's law. God's, one, God's law consisting of one command. There's only one command in the Garden of Eden. Only one thing Adam had to do. Don't eat of that tree in the midst of the garden. One law. If you keep that law, you'll, you'll be blessed. You'll inherit eternal life, you'll be rewarded. If you don't keep that law, you'll, you'll die. And then after Moses, the situation was the same. Uh, when the days of Moses came along, God gave a law, not one, but about 2,000. About 2,000 2, rules and regulations in the, in the law of Moses. And so people after Moses had a law. So you can tell why they were punished, they broke the law. People, Adam had a law, 
You tell why he died, because there was a law. But what about the people in between Adam and Moses? They didn't have any law. God didn't give them any law. Between Adam and Moses, there was no law. They weren't under the law given to Adam. They weren't under the law given to Moses because it hadn't come along yet. They did not have any law. And yet they died. If they died and death is the, is the result of transgression of the law and they didn't have the law, then why did they die? That's Paul's question. And the answer is, they sinned in Adam. Adam was there on their behalf. When Adam sinned, they sinned. That's, that's the teaching of Paul. In 1 Corinthians he says, in Adam all die. When Adam was there, he was there for us. He was representing us. It wasn't just Adam who was being tested, it was the entire human race. And God will deal with the entire human race according to what happens with Adam. We are in Adam. That's the teaching. You may say to me, that's not fair, I wasn't there, why should I be blamed for Adam's sin? To which the answer is, you could not have had a better representative than Adam. Adam if Adam can't, can't stand up against Satan, well you certainly can't, you cannot have a better representative than Adam, he is the most perfect human being there ever was. He was directly created by God, he, he, was in the, he was there as the image of God, he was perfect, he was without sin, he had total free will. He, if ever there was a sinless man, there's only ever been two sinless men, that's, that's Adam and Jesus. He was totally and utterly without sin. You couldn't get a better representative than, than Adam. And when Adam was, as it were, under test, you were under test. You were there being represented. It's a bit like an ambassador going to a, a foreign country if... Um, if in Kenya the ambassador to America goes to America to discuss things with Mr. Obama, we, we will say, Kenya is discussing things with America. They're discussing security with Mr. Obama. Yet actually only one person's there. I mean, all 40 million of Kenya didn't hop on the plane to go to, go to Washington. It, it was just one person, the ambassador went. And we say, we say Kenya is discussing things with America. But, but we don't mean every, every Kenyan citizen went to America. We mean that one person went there on our behalf. If, if our ambassador is discussing things with America, well then, well then the result is it, it, it commits the whole of Kenya. If America demands something with our ambassador, he comes back and we all do it. But it what he decided, we've all decided. We're in him. He, he makes our decision for us. It's a bit like that. Just as an ambassador does something for every member of the whole country. So Adam did what he did for every single member of the human race. And God deals with us according to what happened in the case of Adam. So, coming back again, read it, read it again. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through that sin, and so death spread to all men, because all men sinned. What does he mean? He means all men sinned in that sin of Adam. We sinned in Adam, and the whole human race fell, and we were born into a judgment that Adam brought, and we were born with this sinful tendency that we got through Adam. He'd been put out of the Garden of Eden, and we were born outside of the Garden of Eden. He was born separated from God, and we are born separated from God. We inherit everything that, that, that came upon the human race in the person of Adam. That's, the, that's my summary of verses 13 and 14. We sinned, but not like Adam. We died, but not because of Adam, not because we were Adam, not because we were under the law of Moses, but
but because we are in Adam. His death is our death. His sin is our sin. His judgment is our judgment. We are in Adam. And remember that the way of our fall is the same as the way of as our salvation. If that's how sin came into the world, it's also how salvation comes into the world. Because the same thing is true of Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, we were in Jesus. He was dying for the, he was dying upon the cross for the sins of the human race, just as Adam was in the garden under test for the human race. And just as sin came into the world through Adam being there for us, so salvation comes into the world, but by Christ being there for us. Just as we died in Adam, we come, we come alive in a second Adam, Jesus. And Jesus is our representative when he's dying for our sins upon the cross. Jesus is our representative in heaven. That's why the Bible says we are, we are in heaven. We are seated in the heavenly places because we're in Christ. So the way of our loss and the way of our salvation is the same. The mechanism, the actual procedure is the same. Or almost the same. There's a difference that I'll tell you about in a moment. So that's why Paul digresses. He digresses to explain how he can say everybody dies. The reason why he can say that is because everybody dies in Adam. That's the point of that digression for those two verses, verses 13 and 14. But he still, he still can't come back to his, to his comparison because there's something else he needs to explain. Although Adam and Christ are parallel, as in Adam, so in Christ, in many ways parallel, as one man sinned, another man saved. As one man was disobedient, the other man, Jesus, was obedient. They're sort of parallel. They're not completely parallel. And the reason why Paul still has to explain a bit is because what Jesus brings to us is far bigger than what happened in Adam. So, so there's another digression. Another digression is in verses 15 to 17. But the free gift is not like the transgression. It's not exactly parallel. What Jesus does is much bigger than what Adam did. So the free gift is not totally, it's not like the, the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, this is bigger, this is greater, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of that grace by one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It's not exactly parallel because what we get back is bigger than what we lost. What we get back in Jesus is bigger than what we lost in Adam. And what Jesus did in grace is vastly bigger than what Adam did. And so these two things, they're not equally balanced. Grace and law are not balanced. Grace is bigger than law. The spirit is bigger than than the law. Jesus is greater than Satan. The kingdom of heaven is greater than the realm of Satan and death and judgment. On on the one side, our salvation is not just cancelling out our sin, it is altogether bigger than sin. We come into a vastly superior and greater kingdom than ever there was before. Actually, we get more than Adam was. It's not that we go back to paradise. When you get saved, you're not just going back to paradise, you're going to the reward that Adam would have got if he had been obedient. There's a hymn about it, there's a song about it where, where the verse is left out. You know, do you know the song? We don't, do we sing these, ain't these old songs anymore? Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Do you know, the, do you know those old hymns? Maybe you don't sing those old hymns anymore. There's a line in that old hymn by John Newton. 
death and the curse, how does it go? Death and the curse shall be no more. In him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. In him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Is that old hymn? Only, only they leave that verse out for some reason. But uh, you get back more than you lost. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you don't just get back to where Adam was, you get back something even greater. You get back to where Adam was going to if he had been obedient. In, him, the tri- in Jesus, in him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. That's the point. I read it again. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more, much bigger, much greater, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded. It's bigger, it's greater. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more, much bigger, much greater will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign. It's not just that we come back to where we were, we come back as kings, we're ruling, we're reigning, we're getting back everything that that we could have got if Adam had been obedient. We reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So you see, what he's doing in verses 15 to 17 is he's digressing again. He's not finishing his comparison yet because he he doesn't want us to think this comparison is just totally on a level. No, no. As we lost something in in Adam, we get something back through Jesus. But what we get back is bigger than what we lost. We get back a kingdom. We get back an abundance. We get back an overflowing realm of grace in which grace is ruling over us. Salvation is not a kind of crutch It's not a prop where we sort of hobble through life. It's a kingdom. It reigns. It rules over us. God has got hold of us. And grace grace reigns and rules in our lives. Nothing is ever going to take that salvation away. If we wander, grace is going to bring us back. If we fall, grace is going to pick us up. If we do something terrible, grace is going to overrule. We're in a kingdom of grace. You see, you haven't seen the gospel unless you feel that it's too good to be true. Have you ever looked at the gospel and said to yourself, no, no, it can't be as easy as that. It's too good to be true. If you've never said to yourself, this is too good to be true, I don't think you've seen it yet. Because the gospel is so great. It is so, it is so magnificent. There was a time in my preaching in Nairobi when the rumour got around Nairobi. I once got a lot of criticism from my fellow pastors the rule, the, the, the rumour went round Nairobi, Pastor Eaton is teaching, you can sin as much as you like and it don't matter. That, that's the, that's the rumour that went round Nairobi. I was quite pleased that that rumour went round. <laughs> because that's what happened to Jesus. And that's what happened to Paul. You see, when Jesus brought, brought his message, they said, well, you're destroying the law. You know, you're saying you can do what you like. And Jesus says, don't suppose that I came to destroy the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. But here's my question, why did Jesus say, don't suppose? 
Don't suppose that I'm throwing away the law. Why did Jesus say that? Because they did suppose it. They said, this man Jesus, he, he doesn't care about the law. He's throwing away the law. He's just forgetting all, all of the commands of God. Jesus says, no, no, don't suppose that I'm throwing away the law. I'm not. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. But you see, the interesting thing is, they thought he was maybe cancelling the law. If nobody ever thinks that you're being a bit licentious, then you're not preaching the gospel. They thought Jesus was being a bit not licentious. Why did they think that? Well, because he had such a free, a doctrine of free grace that they said, well, you know, you don't care about sin. They accused him of that. And I would say to you, especially if you're a preacher, if you are never accused of licentiousness, you're not preaching the gospel. The gospel is such that someone somewhere is going to say, hey, you're saying we can do what you like. You're not saying that, but someone's going to think you are. Can, can you follow me? Or Paul says, Romans chapter 6 verse 1, after this chapter, Paul says, what should we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Why did Paul say that? The reason why Paul said that is because that's the way certain people took him. They said, well, Paul, you're saying that, 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 that sin can abound. It makes no difference if we sin. So right, grace will abound. Why did Paul have to answer that question? Well, the answer is because he preached in such a way that that question came up. Do you follow me? You follow why I'm pleased when someone says, well, you're preaching licentiousness. I'm quite pleased. If nobody ever does say that of me, well, then I can't be preaching the gospel. If they say it about Jesus, and they say it about Paul, but they're not saying it about me, then I can't be preaching Paul or Jesus' message. Surely, if I preach what, what Jesus preached, and if I preach what Paul, Paul preached, they will say the same thing about me as they said about him. Is that not logical? You're very quiet now. I hope you're following me. <laughs> the gospel is not licentious. But you must be accused of licentiousness. If nobody ever comes to you and saying, you, you can say we can do what we like. Nobody ever says that to you. You're not preaching the gospel. The gospel will always be accused of being licentious. It's not guilty of it. Because when you get the Holy Spirit and grace, grace trains you in righteousness. So, so you're, not, you're not being antinomian, you're not being unrighteous, you're not being licentious, because the grace of God trains us to live sober, upright and godly lives. Titus chapter 2. The grace of God does not let us go on in sin. But it's so liberating, it's so free, it is so generous, it's so magnanimous, that someone somewhere is going to say, well, you're saying you can do what we like. It's not true, but someone will make that accusation. If they don't make that accusation, you're not preaching the gospel. You follow me? I hope you are. Yes. You must be accused of being licentious. And then you answer the accusation. They say, you're preaching, you can do what you like. And you answer, no. And you tell them why, why you're not preaching that. But the grace of God is so magnanimous, it's so generous, that for a second or so, you think you can do what you like. And then the answer is, no, you can't. But God is so magnanimous. I hope you know this already. I hope I'm not telling you anything new. Do you know what it's like to, to feel a bit shocked that God should even forgive you at all? Do you ever say to the Lord, Lord, I, I, don't even think you think, I don't even think you should forgive me. You know, I'm such a sinner. How can you forgive someone like me? And you, you actually are shocked at God's grace. If you're not shocked at God's grace, I think you haven't seen the gospel yet. I mean, God's grace is scandalous. The fact that, saves, the fact that he saves you shows what a scandalous saviour we have. How can he save a person like you? I mean, it's just disgusting. He should save you or me. I haven't got to save me. I don't know how he can do it. I've been a Christian for a long time. 
let's say half a century, more than half a century ago. And I can tell you, I still haven't recovered from the shock. I'm still recovering from the thought that he could save someone like me. If you're not surprised to find yourself saved, I'm not sure you are saved. If you're not surprised at how amazing God's grace is, I don't know whether you've seen it yet. You remember John Wesley? And, and can it be, you know that song, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Saviour's love? Died he for me? Died he for me? Who caused his pain? For me? Who him to death pursued? Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? If you don't feel that way, you haven't seen the gospel yet. That's the gospel. That God is so good to you. He is so gracious. He is so magnanimous. There's nothing you can do to drive him away. He loves you with an everlasting love. He will never, never abandon you or turn away. You cannot lose your salvation. If you you think you can, I don't even know whether you've seen what the gospel is yet. You cannot lose your salvation. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. You are given something. You will have it forever. God will never take it back. This is the grace of God. This is amazing. And this is Paul's point. Adam brought terrible calamity. He brought such sin and wickedness. Think of the vileness and the horribleness of of our world. I've been getting emails every five minutes while I've been here in in the last 24 hours and getting SMSs beeping on my phone every few minutes from a girl in West Kenya who is due to be married and the, and the guy about to marry her abandoned her at the last moment she didn't get married she turned to any men anywhere to sort of give her some love having been abandoned by some man and in the end she got AIDS. Well, you can deal with AIDS. There are retroviral drugs that will keep you alive if you have AIDS. But she didn't want them. She didn't want to stay alive. And I'm SMSing families in Kenya at the moment because she's died. She's died because she didn't want to live. That's our world. That's, our, that's the world we live in. People can get in such a mess that they commit suicide or they let themselves die or they ruin their lives. But it's, it's because they've not seen the grace of God. Have you ever noticed how Jesus was offering Judas salvation to the very last moment? Have you ever seen that? Here's Judas at the Last Supper and Jesus is saying, one of you will betray me. But he's not saying which one. He's, he's, he's giving Judas a chance to come back. If, if he comes back, Jesus will never say what he had on his mind. He's just giving a little warning without exposing him. Judas is... is exposing Jesus, betraying Jesus, but Jesus is not betraying him. Jesus is actually protecting Judas. And he comes and he, he takes a little bit of meat or bread or whatever it was and he dips it into the soup and he gives it to Judas. He's treating Judas as an honoured guest. Even Judas, he's, he's saying, well, Judas, come back. You don't, you don't have to betray me. Come back or find somebody else to betray me. You come, come back, come back. He's actually offering Judas salvation at the very point where Judas is planning to walk out and betray him with a kiss. It's this grace of Jesus. And people, I, I think of a man that I know about, I, I never knew him, it was many decades ago. I, I think of a man at Westminster Chapel who was saved under the ministry of Dr. Lloyd-Jones in Wales. But he fell into sin and trouble, 
got involved with a, a lady driving instructor and uh, fell into sin and immorality, abandoned his wife. One day, one day, he came back to his wife and persuaded his wife to put the house in his name only. And he sold the house. And the wife was left without a home. And he went off with his woman friend, having the proceeds of a sold house. And eventually he lost all that as well, and the girl left him, and he was in such trouble. And one day he was in London and he made such a mess of his life he decided to commit suicide. And so he went to Westminster Bridge and he, he climbed up over, he was getting over the bridge and he was about to throw himself in the River Thames. But it was half past six on the Sunday night and as he was about to throw himself in the river, Big Ben struck half past six. And he remembered that his old pastor, Lloyd-Jones, was now at Westminster Chapel down the road. And he said to himself, I'll go and hear the old man once more before I finish off my life. He got off the bridge, he walked down the road to Westminster Chapel, he was about ten minutes late, and Lloyd-Jones was praying, the, the, the pulpit prayer. And as he walked in through the, through the door, Lloyd-Jones was praying, the first words he heard was, Lord, please have mercy on the backslider. And it restored him like that. And he came back to the Lord. He went back to Wales, he found his wife, he packed up his marriage and he lived as an honourable church member for the rest of his life. It's grace of God. You, you, can be, you can be about to throw yourself off a bridge into a river and God will let you hear a prayer for the backslider and you come back. I, I think of many, many stories like that. There used to be an old story, what was it called? God in the Shadows. I remember reading that book as a teenager. Some, some, some journalist who got saved wandered far from God and then came back and he, he would say that he always felt God chasing him, chasing him. France, you, know, you know the um, poems of Francis Thompson? How does it go? This, this being chased down the everlasting ways. God chasing you, the hound of heaven. God coming after you, determining to get you back. The hound of heaven by Francis Thompson. He was a, he was a, a, a drunk and a tramp in London but he wrote poetry. He wrote a poem, can I remember it? How's it go? When you're in trouble, you call upon him and you don't suffer loss until you see a ladder between heaven and Charing Cross. Not not only a ladder uh, like Jacob's ladder, but a ladder between heaven and Charing Cross. He would wander around as a a drug addict and alcoholic in Charing Cross. When, when you're in trouble and you cry to God for your loss, a ladder will appear between God and Charing Cross. Read those poems of Francis Thompson, The Hound of Heaven. God comes after you. He doesn't let you go. Sometimes he puts you all, through all sorts of things. And when you think you're, you're about to commit suicide, suddenly God just steps in and does something and brings you back. Don't give up on somebody who's backslidden. You've lost a son, you've lost a daughter, you've got a husband who left you and went, went a long way away. Someone you think will never be saved. Oh, you can get some surprises. Think of the Apostle Paul going down that road to Damascus, breathing out threats and slaughter. I would like to have interviewed him. I would like to have been a journalist interviewing the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Hi, Paul, where, where are you going to? I'm going to Damascus. Now, what are you going to do in Damascus? I'm, you know, I'm going after those Christians. I've got these documents here. I, I've got permission to kill any of the Christians. Well, well, Paul, do you think there's any chance that you might be wrong? No, 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 don't talk nonsense. Jesus, he's a sort of fraud and a, and a crook. Or do you think you'd ever become one of these Christians? No, no, of course not. 
when you get to when you get to Damascus, Damascus what are you going to do? I'm going to get these Christians. I'm going to kill them. You know, they, they, they're worthy of the death penalty. Do you think, Paul, there's any any chance that you'll be suddenly converted? No, I don't believe in sudden conversion. The man who doesn't believe in sudden conversion was suddenly converted. And then suddenly Jesus appears. And he sees this glory shining. And in the midst of a glory, there's a face. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Lord, who are you? Time he gets to Damascus, he stands up in the synagogue and says, He is the Son of God. You see, this is God's grace, full of wonders and marvels. He can rescue anybody, anywhere. He can rescue you. He can pick you up. He can do anything. This abundance of grace. Have you discovered this? He'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you. So this is Paul's point. Therefore, Romans, Romans 5.12, therefore, we're in a new realm. We're not, we're not in Adam at all. And where we were in Adam, now we're not in Adam, we're in Christ. And in Christ there is an abundance, it's vastly bigger, a vastly bigger kingdom that we're in, which will never leave us and never forsake us. There are, there, there are people there, of course, who are bothered about the law. What about the law of Moses? Well, Paul says something about that too. Verse 20, Romans 5.20, The law came in to increase the trespass. Why did God give his law to Israel? Not to everybody, but to Israel. The answer is to make things worse. When God gives his law, it makes things worse for you. You might think, well, if I have a law and I keep the law, you know, maybe my spiritual life will increase. No, the coming in of law does not make things better, it makes things worse. And it makes things worse in two ways. First of all, it starts defining what sin is. God starts saying, this is sin, and this is sin, and this is sin. It starts defining sin. And so your position is worse than ever. God's actually telling you what your sins are, defining it and making you more, more guilty than ever. But not only does, not, does it not define, the law defines sin, it also makes things worse for you. Because if you ever try to keep those laws, if you, if you ever say to yourself, no, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to allow any, any false thinking, I'm not going to covet, I'm not going to want anything that I shouldn't want. If you ever try to put, as it were, the holy life before you and determine you're going to live it, well, what happened? I guess you started sinning more than ever. You saw you'd never do it, you did it, you did it five minutes later. You sure you'd never see that girl, but you did. You're sure you'd never go after that man, but you did. You're sure you'd never tell that lie, but you did. You wouldn't, you wouldn't waste your money, but you did. All these things you, sh- you said you wouldn't do, you do it. You, you discover that sin is more powerful than you realised. And the more you swear you won't sin anymore, the more you do. Being under the law is terrible. It, it, it doesn't make things better, it makes things worse. You don't sin less, you sin more. It stirs up, the Bible says it stirs up all manner of covetousness. You try and live the godly life without living on Jesus and Jesus only, and things will get worse and worse and worse and worse. That's what Romans 7 is all about. I delight in the, in, in the law after the inner man. You delight in the law after the inner man, but don't mention Jesus. You'll be saying the good that I don't want to do, that I want to do, that's what I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I do do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? You, you won't even say, oh, that Jesus will deliver me. You'll say, who will deliver me? You cannot find a saviour, you're in deep trouble. Oh, wretched man that I am, who should deliver me from the body of this death? You will be in deep, deep trouble. You don't get saved by being under law. You don't get saved by being or, or rescued or helped or strengthened by being under a system. You find spiritual strength not by being under a system, but being under a person. Let, let your law be Jesus. 
Let Jesus be your law. Be under him. Let him be the one who gives you, gives you the instructions. And so Paul says, when the law came in, it only increased the trespass. And, but where sin increased, where this battle to live the godly life got worse and worse, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Live on the grace of Jesus. Don't live upon the mosaic system. Don't, don't live in a mosaic way. Don't just live on legislation. Don't just live on commands. Commands don't give any strength to you. Live on the person of Jesus. Live on forgiveness. Live on fellowship. Live on prayer. Live upon contact with your Saviour. Eat his body. Drink his blood. Unless you eat his body, unless you drink his blood, which means you have fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, unless you feed on him, you have no life in you. You won't have life. You won't have energy. You won't have power unless you're living upon a person. This is the state of the human race. The human race fell in Adam. And the whole human race fell into sin and wickedness. It is ingrained into the very being of the, of the human person. And there's only one way out. The only way out is to be taken out of Adam and to be put into Christ. It's the only hope for our world. It's the only hope for our nation. It's the only hope for your personal life. Fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ is your only hope. Be strong, says the Bible. Be strong in the Lord. Be in the Lord. Be in fellowship. Be strong in the Lord and in the working of his power. Be strong, said Paul to Timothy. Be strong to the, in the grace of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As you receive Christ Jesus, said Paul to the Colossians, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him, rooted in him, grounded in him. It's the only way to live. When you live in Jesus, when you live in fellowship, when you eat his body, you see his body was there for you dealing with sin upon the cross and you eat it, you feed upon it, you take it into your heart and into your life. When you drink his blood, not, not at the mass, but by, by faith, seeing that Jesus died for you, living upon that grace that comes through the cross. When you eat his body, when you drink his blood, in that sort of way, you have life, you come alive. It's mainly a matter of, of rejoicing. You rejoice in the gospel. You just praise God. You live upon grace. You see how, God, how good God is. You believe him when he says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. You believe him when he says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You believe him when it says those whom he justified, he glorified. You believe him when he says he gives you eternal life. You'll never perish. No one will take you from his hand. No one will take you from the Father's hand. He and the Father are one. They are working together to bring you to glory. You believe those things. You live upon them. And the grace of God abounds. It has a lot to do with prayer. You spend time, quality time, with the Lord Jesus Christ every day, seeking the presence of God, seeking fellowship. Live upon him. Live upon his grace. You're not under law. You're not under death. You're not going to die. He who believes in me shall never die. Even when your life comes to an end, you're not really dying. You're just going click into a, into a new world, a new kingdom. It's not really death. He who believes in me shall never die. You've died to death, you've died to sin, you've died to law, you've died, you've died to everything bad. You've died to Satan, Satan can't get hold of you. He can shout at you, he can whisper to you, he can shout things over the wall, but he can't get hold of you. You don't belong to him. The evil one touches him not. 
on John. He can't get hold of you. When you resist him, there's nothing you can do about it. Satan is resistible. That's the best news you'll ever hear about Satan. He's resistible. Resist him and he'll flee from you. He, he cannot stand if you resist him. Resist him strong in the grace that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. He can do nothing about us. Move in the direction God's calling you in. Satan cannot stop you. You're in Christ. Jesus is stronger than Satan. The Holy Spirit is stronger than law. Grace is greater than judgment. Christ is greater than Adam. You're not in Adam, you're in Christ. Where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. My friends, we've got to get hold of this. We've got to get hold of it and believe it. Live upon it. If you say to me, it's too good to be true, I will answer, how are you beginning to see it? It is so, if you, if you don't have the feeling, this is too good to be true, you've not seen it yet. See it. Until you marvel and wonder and say, can, it, can God be as good as this? Can God be as gracious as this? And listen to the answer. Yes, yes, yes. He's as good as that. Live upon him. Live upon his grace. Where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. You are uncondemnable. You cannot be condemned. Sometimes you should feel ashamed of yourself, but that's not the same as being condemned. You cannot be condemned. You, could, you might feel ashamed of yourself sometimes. That's all right. That happens to all of us. But you're not rejected. You're not condemned. You're not cast out. You are under a regime, a kingdom of the grace of God. So let's pray as we bring our meetings to a close. Can you believe these amazing things that God swears to you that he will never, never leave you nor forsake you. Her goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Can you get hold of that, that you're in such a kingdom of grace? Father, we praise you and thank you. These things are so big we can hardly take them in. Can it be that you should be as good to us as this? And yet that's what you tell us. I pray that we may know these things, we may believe them, we may take them into our hearts. I pray for each person here today, Lord, whatever state we may each be in, some feeling ashamed, some with problems in their lives, no doubt, some with things that they hope nobody will ever find out about. I pray, Lord, that we may see the amazing abundance of your grace, how big it is, how vast it is. I pray that we may see our uncondemnability I pray that we may see that you have got hold of us and will never, never leave us. Help us to see these things and live upon your grace, live upon your mercy, live upon your tenderness, live upon your your great everlasting love that you tell us cannot be taken away. Teach us these things. Help us to live upon them beginning now, beginning today and forever. Teach us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.